Before we get started, just letting you know that the following episode contains archival clips with strong discriminatory language. Open door. Okay, how about that door? Back you rolling. 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 Hey, let's shut up. Are we rolling? Yeah, so, so we'll keep it up. Mohammed, it's it's 34 years since we first met. How are you? Get old. <laughs> Will you welcome the champ, Muhammad Ali? Come and sit down. Very, very good to have you with us. Glad to be back on your show. You know, I'm becoming a regular custom over here. No doubt about it, and it's, it's a joy to have you with us regularly. That was David Frost introducing Muhammad Ali over 30 years apart, just two of the 10 occasions they sat down together in front of the camera. I made my stand for my religious beliefs, and I'm not crying, I'm not protesting. I knew what they would do. As a matter of fact, that's why they drafted me, was to get the title. They had to find a way to take the title. They couldn't just deliberately take it. So uh, that would cause too many racial problems. So they had to figure out a legal way to get it. But do you think Washington would go along with the plans of the World Boxing Association? Yes, Washington. Washington is the ones that's keeping me from fighting. In 1967, Muhammad Ali, by then one of the greatest boxers of all time, was stripped of his heavyweight title when he refused to be drafted during the Vietnam War. One year later, he'd meet with my dad, the interviewer David Frost, for the first time. It was the beginning of a lifelong relationship, both on and off screen. You might not know this, but dad was almost a professional athlete himself. As a teenager, he'd been offered terms by the soccer team Nottingham Forest. He decided to go to Cambridge University instead, but the lives of athletes would continue to fascinate him. And Muhammad Ali was one of Dad's favourite athletes to talk to because he was so much more than an athlete. He was an entertainer, artist and political activist too. Over the course of five decades, their conversations would capture Ali's surprising modesty. I don't know if I'm actually the best boxer in the world. The racism he faced just fought for the great American flag. And in my own little country, I couldn't even get a beef burger. I didn't know what was wrong, but it wasn't right. And his razor wit. I told you on your show, you're not as dumb as you look. (laughs) I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. In this episode, a look inside the life of Muhammad Ali. I'm always on guard when they say David Frost called. I said, yeah. Wonder what's up his sleeve today. Before he was a heavyweight champion and civil rights icon, Muhammad Ali was just Cassius Clay a poor kid in Louisville, Kentucky, the son of a billboard painter and domestic helper, the descendants of slaves. One of two children, Clay grew up in a racially segregated part of Louisville. As a child, he learnt early what it felt like to be denied the privilege to drink at white-only water fountains and eat at white-only restaurants. He struggled in school and had trouble reading and writing because of dyslexia. But at the age of 12, his entire destiny would change – 
all thanks to the most unlikely circumstance. Is it true you started fighting because someone stole your bicycle? Yes. At 12 years old, I was in Kentucky, Louisville, and at this big home show, at this uh, big uh, Columbia Hall, where they have basketball games and they have displays of refrigerators and stoves and cars and people sell their products and they gave away popcorn and hot dogs free and every year we would go there to get the free goodies. And this was a little after Christmas, I left my bicycle outside, went in, <clears throat> stayed by the hour, came out, it was raining, my bicycle was gone and someone, uh, as someone was the nurse policeman, they said in the basement of the building where the home show was held, a police officer named Joe Martin was down there in a little room training fighters and I asked him could he, he took the description and told me to uh, come back to the gym, start boxing. Maybe one day if I catch it, I felt like I beat him up. And I noticed this police officer never found the wheel, but I went back and started boxing. And that was the start of a great career. One might even say the greatest career. In 1954, at the tender age of 12, Clay made his amateur debut. Over the next six years, he'd dominate the local boxing scene. He'd win six Kentucky Golden Glove titles. He'd grabbed two national golden gloves, and in 1960, he was selected to compete in the Summer Olympics in Rome. Play all over Pietrakowski here at the end of round three. The 18-year-old from Kentucky would win gold. Clay began to contemplate going pro. Word started to go around that he was the next big thing in boxing, a sport that at the time was at peak popularity in the United States. Dad asked him about the sport's appeal in a 1969 interview. What do you think actually is the uh, appeal of boxing to people? To what extent do you think it's the noble art <coughs> and people go and see boxing because it's you leaping about on the tips of your toes? And how much is it people go in fact to see someone get hurt? Well, I don't think that people really want to see somebody get hurt, just like car racing, which is a real dangerous thing where cars are riding at 190, 200 miles an hour and they pile up on each other. I don't know what it is. It seems like they go uh, wondering how it would look like or wondering if it will be a knockout. Or... So uh, my intention never was to really hurt a fella or to hurt him. I would say a few uh, sports announcers have criticized me for, they say, carrying the fight, which means something crooked, it means it's fixed. But I didn't actually carry no fights, but I have, will admit that I have seen opponents uh, in such physical uh, unconsciousness on their feet. And I saw chances to really hurt them to the extent where it's possible to have a brain concussion. And I've, I knew I was winning, the fight was just about over, and I've actually backed off and lightened up. I would say one of your countrymen, Henry Cooper, was an example. He bleeds easy, and whenever he gets cut, I mean, blood just gushes. And as soon as I saw this, I just, just lost all the fighting instinct and backed off for about a minute and a half. I didn't fight, hoping that the referee would soon stop it, and the referee did. I didn't like really hurting someone. This was, never was my intention. Were you ever conscious of landing a punch and knowing that you'd really hurt someone? No, because I'm not known for having a lot of hitting power. I just hit, you know, just so regular but I never really hit hard. I had a knockout record. Well, in fact, 37 of his 56 wins, or about 66%, were decided by a knockout. But it did surprise me, having listened to hours of Dad's interviews with Muhammad Ali, how he was often far more modest than his public persona. But in the 1960s, being a gold medal-winning phenomenon could only get Clay so far. This was an era of deep civil unrest in the United States, and Clay couldn't escape the basic fact that he was a black man in America. 
After winning his gold, he was refused service at a whites-only restaurant. Clay tried to explain to the owner that he was a world champion, an Olympian, but arguing got him nowhere. He'd later claim that he was so angry with the exchange, he threw his gold medal into the Ohio River. But Clay kept boxing and winning. Between 1960 to 1963, he'd go undefeated, with most fights ending with a knockout punch. Before each match, he'd attract attention to himself with a stream of poetic trash-talking, a tactic he learned from a fellow fighter. You mean all those poems and things were, were warfare, were campaign warfare, were they to... Building the gates, yeah. I saw building rascal. the gates or worrying the opponent? Mainly building the gates. I saw a fellow named Gorgeous George. He's deceased now, a great rascal. And I watched him on television one day talking about how beautiful he was. I'm going to annihilate this bum, I'll kill him. And I went to the arena that night to see him get beat. And because he bragged too much. And that night, coming to the ring, he had two or three models, ladies carrying his robe so it wouldn't touch the ground. And then he would go into the corner of his opponents and spray, you know, deodorant all over the ring, you know. And people would be booing him, he'd throw something at him. And the whole place was packed. This was the Las Vegas Convention Center. And each seat, maybe $25. And I said, this is a good idea, you know, when I saw <laughs> Right away, I started talking. I am the greatest. I cannot be beat. I'm the king. If you keep talking jab, you're falling fire. And they said, he needs a good whooping. He talks too much. And they were just bad tickets. You know, cars would be lying up for <laughs> Clay's pre-bout poems would become legendary. In 1964, he'd release an album of spoken word poetry called I Am The Greatest. Not only did it sell 500,000 copies, it was nominated for a Grammy and is now considered one of the first rap albums ever made. But it was Clay's fists that did most of the talking. By late 1963, he'd become a top contender for the world heavyweight title, then held by Sonny Liston. Liston was a frightening boxer, 35 wins and only one loss. And not only was he physically strong, he also had a menacing backstory that could strike fear into the heart of any opponent. He'd been arrested more than a dozen times and had close relationships with known mobsters. But Clay didn't care, he wanted to fight, so he started a campaign of harassment to get Liston to box him. He rented a bus, parked it outside of Liston's home, and started calling him a bum through a megaphone. In Las Vegas, Clay annoyed Liston so much at a craps table that the champ pulled out a handgun and pulled the trigger, albeit it was loaded with blanks. But Liston eventually agreed to fight. Their clash would ultimately take place in February 1964 in Miami. When the odds came out, they put them 7-1 to one in favour of Liston. But Clay didn't seem scared at all. He swaggered during the days before the bout, calling Liston a big ugly bear and saying, after I beat him, I'm going to donate him to the zoo. Liston, in response, was completely unfazed. He prepared by eating hot dogs and drinking beer and did little, if any, exercise before the fight. But in the seventh round, Clay emerged victorious as Liston gave up. Clay has won! Clay has won! I have a belt at home saying, defeated Sonny Liston February the 25th, 1964. 
At age 22, he'd become the youngest boxer to win the title from a reigning heavyweight champion. But Clay would soon learn that in many parts of America, it was still not enough to win hearts or minds. I was fighting Sonny Liston. I heard a fella from Georgia, Mississippi. He was white. He was from somewhere. He was really mad. He said, knock him out, Sonny. Knock that nigger out. He talks too much. Give that. Boy, and I was just laughing because he, he was in a $100 seat. <laughs> By 1967, America was reaching a boiling point. The civil rights movement was at its peak and the war in Vietnam was escalating. And so was the protest movement against it. Cassius Clay rallied for both causes and that year he refused to be drafted into the United States military. Clay, like many African-Americans, had recently converted to Islam. He changed his name to Muhammad Ali and made the case that because of his faith, he qualified as a conscientious objector. Ali was slammed in the newspapers. His boxing license was suspended. He was stripped of his heavyweight title and then was charged with draft evasion, which carried a potential sentence of five years in prison. When dad interviewed him one year after his ban, Ali was free on appeal. And I made my stand for my religious beliefs, and I'm not crying, I'm not protesting. I knew what they would do. As a matter of fact, that's why they drafted me, was to get the title. They knew that I wasn't going to the Army for two years, the draft board. They said I was crazy. They didn't want me. I was mentally unfit. Then when they heard my religion was Islam, I was a follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and I was a Muslim, then that shook them. And they changed the law mainly just to get me. Uh, they had to find a way to take the title. They couldn't just deliberately take it. So uh, that would cause too many racial problems. So they had to figure out a legal way to get it. So this, knowing that Muslims don't go to the army, knowing that I wasn't going to go, uh, they figured that if they draft me, then they could brainwash the masses, the people into thinking that I wouldn't serve my country. Critics called Ali a hypocrite. How could a man who made a living playing such a violent sport be a pacifist? But Ali felt strongly he was in the right. I fight in the ring but wasn't willing to go abroad to fight. See that boxing and war cannot be considered nowhere alike. No, the intention in the war is to kill. And boxing is not to kill. We have protected gloves on, straw in them. Could you ever imagine a situation in which there was such a moral battle going on that you would be prepared to fight for the United States? No, I fight for myself. Uh, we fought for the United States in Germany. Uh, we fought for the United States in Japan. And now we're in Vietnam. Still, we are not free. So we if shouldn't be so, I'm not so honored to let you know I'll fight for the United States when I'm not free. My title was taken because of my religion. No, but so I mean, I'll be the last man to say that. No, but I mean, if the German threat of 1939 and Hitler was today, or there was, which there won't be, a communist invasion, would you fight for the United States? If I was then, living then, Uncle Tom and slow thinking, slavery minded like black people were then, I'd probably thought it was an honor to go over there, you know. But as of now, with the truth that I've been taught by Elijah Muhammad and the history of my people with whites 
who are our real enemies, not the Viet Cong, not the Chinese, not the Japanese, our enemies, our oppressors, our opposers are white Americans. Nobody. I, I can see. I, I can see the reasons for your protest and so on. But you can't go as far as saying that they're your total enemy. The One total enemies of black people in America are white people. A lot of white people in America are surely trying it's very hard. But it's about you get about two hundred thousand whites to everyone that don't want to do right to everyone that will oh, do right. Oh no. Yes, sir. Nearer the other way around, surely. No, he kicked all them poor people out of Washington. Where were all the good whites to say that? Ali is referring to the Poor People's Campaign. Just weeks after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Tennessee, riots broke out in cities across the country. By contrast, in Washington, D.C., a group of 3,000 protesters with the Poor People's Campaign began a peaceful protest by occupying part of the nation's capital with a tent encampment called Resurrection City. Their goal was to get Congress to pass an economic Bill of Rights. But after weeks of little progress, police descended on the city with tear gas and arrested nearly 300 people. Events like that prompted Ali to speak more openly about racial injustice. This has been building up for 400 years, and it all started when the whites first brought us here in chains and slaved and lynched and castrated and killed and murdered us for 400 years. So uh, this started, didn't just start, and I've always been prepared. Ever since I won the gold medal in Rome, went back to Louisville, Kentucky, and was denied a beef burger downtown. And I was the champion of the whole world, just fought for the great American flag. And in my own little country, one horse town, I couldn't even get a beef burger. I didn't know what was wrong, but it wasn't right. And then watching black people in demonstrations, black women kicked around and uh, beat up and all unjustly treated, worked hard. And this has always been building. And then after any chance that we get, to latch onto something that we think will solve these problems, we do it. Ali was particularly angry by what he believed was Washington's and white America's hypocrisy. Uh, when I see white boys uh, like burning draft cards and hanging statues of the president and leaving the country and taking airplanes and going to Cuba and breaking in draft boards, white preachers and burning up 15 and 10,000 draft records and than me being more crucified than them and I haven't done nothing illegally. This is what caused your riots and make people hostile. The little man in the ghettos of Washington, Cleveland, Baltimore. These people see their stars, uh, their uh, idols so unjustly persecuted. Like for an example now, I'm not allowed to earn a living here. I'm not allowed to leave the country. I have about $10 million in contracts in foreign countries, European and African countries. And the government has took, taken my passport so that I can't go out here to work. Then I cannot work in America. In season one of The Frost Tapes, we featured an interview with Stokely Carmichael, an early civil rights advocate whose views grew more radical over time, eventually becoming a prominent voice in the black separatist movement. The idea that rather than integrate, black communities needed to separate from white society to achieve true self-determination. By the late 1960s, Ali, who was close friends with Carmichael, shared these separatist views. If you had a class of, uh, of white children and black children, you know, small children, sitting in front of you, both, what would you tell them to help them to live together? There's nothing that I could tell them, nor would I convince them to try to live together. 
because black and whites have been here, as Elijah Muhammad teaches us, now for 400 years, and it's getting worse. One thing I want to say, many people say he hates white. Listen to him. Uh, uh, whites, in the sense of hate, just hate, don't really hate black people, and blacks just don't hate whites. But it's two natures that will never get along. If I take you to Harlem tonight, to all black party, where they playing soul music, talking that type talk, eating that type food, culture, dishes, you would not feel at home. Now, if you take me to all white party, playing all your type music and your songs, and, and, and I will not feel at home because we, we it, it's nature. See, no, I disagree. We both, I, I will be, we will both be in a somewhat unusual environment, but we're both in, we will both quite enjoy it. We'll never get I mean, along. You were talking backstage before the program with six I'm people who you. all happened to be white. You. Now, you, you got on fine. Oh, yeah, we talk business together, but we'll never be able to live together because our natures. See, when a white black man move in a white neighborhood in America, all white people leave. Well, see, I'm lying. I'm telling the truth. But even if Ali was making some controversial statements, he always sought to explain where they came from. You sound like Governor Wallace talking like no, that. I'm Governor Wallace, for those who missed him in season one, was a perennial presidential candidate in the United States who'd called for segregation forever. I'm with Wallace. If I, if I had to vote, which I don't, I'd vote for Wallace because Wallace tells the truth. He talks like way white people feel, but they're hypocritical. As a whole, white folks feel like Wallace. So, I said to And he's one who will tell it, and as a whole, black folks feel like me. You just may be shocked because I'm a so-called rich Negro who left you and went to his own. So but let me, tell, let, me tell, let me tell you something. Black <laughs> folks feel just like me. They're just scared to look you in your white now, face and tell you. Yeah. Remember now, that, instance, yeah? Governor Wallace said to me, I asked him the question, would you let your daughter marry a black man? And he got a good deal of criticism because he said <coughs> he wouldn't want it to happen and no, no and various... Right. And you're saying that it was wrong of people to criticise Governor Wallace, he was right. No, I'm saying I like him because he tells the truth. He don't phone it. He don't go around picking up little black babies. Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> See, you have a wolf and a fox. Both of them look alike, but when they attack the hen house, the approach is different. See, the wolf, he'll warn you before you attack. You know, ooh. He <laughs> said, put the hens up, the wolf's coming. But the fox, he tiptoes around the house. See, you have a rattlesnake. And you got them diamondback cobras. Both of them look alike. They're real pretty. But I like the rattlesnake better because if I get in his way, he'll da, 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 warn me. But the cobra, he slips up on me, see? So you have a southern white man in America and you have a northern one. That's how black people stays tricked in New York. Oh, you're so nice. Everything is all right. I get on the jet and fly for two hours and get off. I see a bunch of tigers looking at me. <laughs> See, both of you look alike, and it ain't that much difference in you. It's just a two-hour jet flight. Well, how'd you change so quick? You haven't changed, but you're a little more educated. You're a little more scientific. You know how to smile, and I was raised with colored people. Oh, my mother had a colored nurse. Oh. Well, I watch you more than I do in the South, see? Because when I get down in the South, at least when I get out of place, he say, watch yourself, nigger. I say, thank you. <laughs> Ali's views on race at this time were, to say the least, intense, but understandably so. After all, this was December 1968. Listening to Ali, I'm reminded of a feeling I often had while making season one of the Frost Tapes. 
of wondering how, despite the progress society has made, we're still facing many of the same problems and questions today, five decades later. In the late 1960s, with his title stripped and unable to box in the US, Ali avoided watching the sport, casually implying that the current title winners were not true champions because they'd not beaten him. Did you see the uh, Fraser Quarry fight, for instance? No, I didn't. I didn't uh, see that fight. I was here, but I didn't see it. How did you manage to resist it? Oh, well, uh, I just, you know, don't have any interest in watching, you know, so-called title fights. Do you feel confident you could beat both? Well, I'd rather not go into that because, uh, like, uh, I've talked enough as far as boasting and predicting is concerned, so I'm through boasting. You through boasting? Yeah. Why? Well, I just have no need to. I don't, you know, I was campaigning a lot for a lot of these bouts just to promote them, but I don't have to campaign now like uh, Mr. Nixon. He traveled all over the country, you know, coming to sign your autographs. Now to see him, you need a suit and a necktie and appointment, see? So in other words, he's in office. He don't have to campaign. The more he's the president. So now that I'm the champion, I have no reason to talk about it. Do you think you will ever have the chance to box again? Well, I'd rather not really comment on that. It's not really uh, worthwhile commenting on because, like, I have two uh, big uh, court cases pending with the uh, wiretapping, illegal wiretapping, uh, hearing on myself and, uh, and Martin Luther King and a few more people the government was snooping on, and uh, then the uh, five-year prison sentence. The potential prison sentence Ali is talking about here was his penalty for avoiding the draft. But the wiretapping he mentions, that was something completely different, and he was right. Both the FBI and NSA had illegally tapped the boxer's phone calls, with the FBI snooping on conversations Ali had with civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. This is in, still in the Court of Appeals. Then all of the boxing authorities would have to, uh, I would say, give me my a license back. So uh, until we cross these bridges and be successful, then there's a possibility I may answer some questions on fighting again. Or maybe I might have to do the five years in prison. I'll probably be too old when I come out. So uh, there's no reason to talk about fighting again because I don't see it nowhere in the future until these cases are clear. But in September 1970, Ali was finally reinstated. He immediately set his sights on taking back his heavyweight title, which was then held by Joe Frazier. He began training immediately in Miami in an unexpected environment. Where were you staying, Mohammed, at that time, when down in Miami? Some old folks' home. <laughs> why, why had you chosen that legal, man? Well, when I'm training for fights, I don't like to be surrounded in plushness and luxury. Like the Fountain Blue Hotel and the, uh, the Hilton and all those places, you know, you have the beautiful soft carpets, you have the chandeliers and all of the everything is walking around, you know, and, it's, and like uh, the temptation and, and the, the extraction and, and the luxury takes your mind away from the ruggedness of getting ready. And this is why I've just built a training camp in uh, Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. And I built a 
50 by 60, about almost as big as this room, log cabin with a heating system, showers, and it's rugged. And like being in these hotels, and, you know, you order room service and the beds are so nice and you got the mirrors and it take, makes you soft. Yeah. So I've, I had to find a, old, a place that wasn't too plush, where the people wasn't too rich, where I could get the atmosphere of uh, struggling. And you know, like usually when people are saying the ghettos are at the bottom, you work harder. And what, what many of them mess up when they get on top and start living good, and that's when they start falling. So I always try to stay in the atmosphere of, like, poverty or struggle. Ends up, the Frasier fight would be one of the most anticipated sporting events of the 1970s. Hour of truth has arrived. <laughs> Both men were undefeated. Ali 31-0, Frasier 26-0. Something had to give, and the fight would go down to the wire. The roughest moment in the phrase fight was the 11th round when I saw the punch coming and it stunned me, but it didn't knock me out. Usually when a fellow's hit over the head coming into a room or something, it's the punches that you don't see that, that uh, don't really hurt, but those you see hurt. Mm. And like, I saw that punch and I couldn't get away from it and I ran right into it and I was like out on my feet until I recuperate after about 20 seconds. But the other punch was just more of a surprise shock, down and right up. Well, you're looking back on it. Did you employ the right tactics in that fight with Joe Frazier? Well, I made a mistake because, like, this thing was the biggest one event held in the history of the world up until now, that fight. Every nation on the planet was watching. Even Red China and Russia got the results, and they were watching all throughout Arabia and England and the whole world. And, like, we couldn't get into the garden. It took an hour to get in the day of the fight, and then the people were waiting for me to come out, so I had to sleep in the garden all day on a cot, and I ate there and couldn't go out and walk like I should. And like, I wasn't properly rested like I should have been. Not making excuses, but the next time I'm gonna have a helicopter to fly me to the building, <laughs> do the weigh-in, and fly me out, cause it's impossible to come through the crowds. It takes so much out of you fighting to get into a place. The match went to 15 rounds. There was no knockout, and when it came time to declare a winner, the judges lifted the arms of Frazier, not Ali. It was his first professional loss. What about in the actual fight itself? Did you actually sort of, in the middle of the fight, it almost seemed to me as though in your confidence you were almost letting Joe Frazier hit you more than he well, you needed Well, I let the critics, that. I let the critics and the newspaper writers get to me. They were saying if I got caught in the corner, if the fight would be over. And I deliberately stayed in the corner for three rounds and let him take shots at my arms and my body. And I was just touching his head and talking to him and playing with him. And, I lost those, those rounds. But he would learn from that experience and come back stronger. Meanwhile, Frazier would lose his title to George Foreman in January 1973. But Ali did still fight Frazier again in 1974, both to avenge his earlier defeat and ensure he got a shot at Foreman soon after. It was a close fight, but Ali won by unanimous decision. This helped set up the Rumble in the Jungle in Kinshasa, Zaire, in October 1974. Ali's shot to regain the world heavyweight title that he'd not held since it was seized from him by the authorities in April 1967. And Dad caught up with him a little more than a month before the bout at his now-completed training camp in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, in his boxing ring, no less. This time, Ali back to his playful, confident self, swaggering poems and all. What's the result going to be of the big fight? No problem. 
No problem. This will be the biggest upset since Sonny Liston. Listen, David, when I meet this man, if you think the world was surprised when Nixon resigned, wait till I whip Fulman's behind. I believe you totally. I believe you completely. I have tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. Now, you know I'm bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. <laughs> Man's in trouble. This man have two chances, slim and none. <laughs> the man don't stand a chance, and I draw that crowd, not George Fulman. It's my beautiful looks. It's my skill. It's my... Bubble your beauty, your beauty and your humbleness. Ali spoke in that interview not just about the importance of physically training for his fight, but mentally and spiritually too. For this fight, I've prayed every day for five days, five times a day for the past uh, uh, four months. And everything is perfect. And if Allah's with me, it ain't no way no man can win. No way. Because I'm representing God. I'm representing the freedom of black people in America. I want to be the one black man who stands up and look at white people and tell the truth, who don't sell them out, who don't uncle dumb, who don't promote cigarettes, don't promote whiskey, take his fame to uplift his little brother in the ghetto because all the other movie stars, they get their fame and they leave their little people. So I'm asking God, Allah, to make me strong, not for me. Don't give me no money. Don't give me the fame. I want to win so I can come home and speak for the brother who's living in rat-infested houses, sleeping on concrete, in the ghetto, can't go on television and speak. So God, I'm your tool. I'm your servant. Let me get this man tonight. And go out blasting. That's a That's... That is an incredible speech. And what you do for black pride is absolutely incredible. This is the way I feel. Yeah. And what you do for black pride... So I'm not fighting for me... I'm looking at George Foreman. I'm looking at the establishment, the flag waver. If he wins, I'm thinking, which is not true, but if he wins, we're enslaved for 300 more years. If I win, we're free. I'm not Foreman, you know that. President Foreman. As you may have gathered there, Ali was playfully throwing some punches towards Dad during that part of the interview. Now I see Foreman. I don't see a black man. I see you. Yeah. I see... I see... I see the White House. <laughs> I'm not the I White see, House either. I see the, I see something white. <laughs> I don't know what you. Ali, at 32, went into the rumble in the jungle fight as significant underdog against Foreman at 25, boasting an unbeaten 40-0 record. It was watched by an estimated global TV audience of one billion people. Ali won the bout by knockout in the eighth round and regained his title of undisputed heavyweight champion of the world in the process. The fight is often regarded as the greatest boxing bout of all time. Even though Dad was not a sports presenter himself, he was the one to interview Ali in the locker room immediately after the fight. It was his only post-bout TV interview. Mohammed, you told me in Deer Lake you were the greatest of all time. 
and I think everybody out there watching now will say that you've proved it to them. I proved that Allah is God. Elijah Muhammad is a messenger, and I have faith in them. And regardless of the world and the pressure, I made it an easy night because Allah has power over all things. If you believe in him, nothing, even George Foreman, will look like a baby. It wasn't a close fight, was it? It wasn't a close fight. No, no. Was it close before I knocked him out? No, no. Everybody stop talking now, attention. At this point, Ali turns and stares down the lens of the camera. I told you, all of my critics, I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. Never again say that I'm going to be defeated. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. Right. Then you might get me. I stayed on the ropes. When I stay on the ropes, you think I'm doing bad. But I want all boxers to put this in the page of boxers. Staying on the ropes is a beautiful thing with a heavyweight when you make him shoot his best shots and you know he's not hitting you. I would have gave George Solomon two rounds of steady punching because after that he was mine. Why was it when you were on the ropes that he could not hurt you, even when you were right there on the ropes blocking? And I was pulling back, and I have a radar built inside me. I told you, I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. But tell me now, are you really going to retire? I'm, I'm seriously thinking about retiring. There's nothing else for me to fight. I told her, well, I'm going to retire. I'm going to hold the title for a few months. I don't. They took my title unjustly. I told you, I'm the real champion. I told you, I'm the champion of the world. All of you bow. All of my critics crawl. All of you suckers who write the Rain magazine. Ali, of course, would not retire, and his 1975 victory over Joe Frazier, known as Thriller in Manila, would cement his place as the greatest of all time. He would eventually retire from boxing in 1979, shortly after losing and then regaining his heavyweight title to Leon Spinks the year before. He was the first heavyweight champion to win the belt three times. Just a few years before Dad died, he'd reflect on his relationship with Ali, in particular, a poem the boxer had given him in 1974, handwritten and framed alongside a photograph. It was a cherished possession of Dad's and is now, for my brother and I, hanging with pride on the wall at home. This is a very treasured possession, given to me back in December 1974 by Muhammad Ali. He writes here to David Frostrom, Muhammad Ali, and the quote reads, The man who views the world at 50 the same way he viewed it at 20 has lived and wasted 30 years of his life. Well, that's certainly not true of Muhammad Ali. For the past 30 years, he's been an inspiration to young and old around the world. God bless him. Indeed, it makes me reflect on this moment between Dad and Ali just before the rumble in the jungle. One last question. At the end of your life, whether it was Allah who was saying it, Elijah Muhammad, or whether it was something that someone wrote about yeah. you after you'd gone, what's the thing you would most like people to say about your life? He was a great champion or what? What would you like people to think about you when you've gone? I'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love. He took one tablespoon of patience, one teaspoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, 
one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith, and he stirred it up well. Then he spread it over a span of a lifetime, and he served it to each and every deserving person he met. Muhammad Ali, thank you very much. In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, the biggest band of all time, The Beatles. We had one of the best jobs in the world. You know, we were in The Beatles. The money was there, the fame was there. Uh, and then suddenly, the day after, there was no job. And that is a blow. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes, and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer, and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and to Whitehorse Pictures. Pictures.